Episode 114, A Burst of Tellurium. And welcome back to another edition of the Syzygy Podcast. My name is Chris Stewart and I am sitting, as usual, around the small circular table in the office of Dr. Emily Brunsden. Emily, how are you doing? Hello, hello. I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, been a busy week. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, yeah, a, that's a fair yeah. call. I saw you earlier in the week. We went for a little wander, you yeah. and me and a small child. Yes. Wandering around a park here in York, which was yeah. very pleasant. It was very nice. And for and once this week, it wasn't teeming with rain, so that's always good. No, no, we, we were very lucky. And uh, I think you observed that the small child had become somewhat larger than your last observation point. Look, he's still small, but he's not as small as he was. <laughs> and that, that being the nature of children, they tend to, that's a sort of, that's a one-way direction of time kind of thing. It is, They yeah. tend to get larger yeah. before they get Entropy smaller. in the universe observed through the, yeah. the growth of children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But since then, we have other things that we need to talk about other mm. than the busyness of life and the growth of children. This week, we are talking about, uh, well, a little bit about where stuff comes from and some, some research that's helped us to fine-tune some of the astronomical and astrophysical ideas of, of where the stuff around us comes from. And mm-hmm. if that sounds a little bit familiar, if you're an old school listener to the Syzygy podcast, you might be thinking to yourself, hang on, didn't you do didn't you do an episode way, way back? We did. We did an episode, episode 30. Yeah, I think was... we're giving our listeners far too much credit. To... Oh, look, I, I can barely remember what no, we did. We have people who've been listening forever, Emily. Don't don't play down our listeners. There are people out there who, who remember episode 30 well because it was the what was it, 100 50th anniversary or something? It was the anniversary. It was, it it was the, the international, international year, year of the periodic table. Of the periodic table. Yeah. And we went through the entire periodic table from the point of view of astronomy, hmm. which just brings it down to basically just three things, mm-hmm. which is which is what? Remind us again what the, what the three things on the periodic table as far as astronomers are concerned? Well, there's hydrogen. Yeah. Quite important. Yeah. Lots of lots of the universe. In fact, yep. most of the universe by an enormous fraction is as hydrogen. As simple as you can get and still be an atom, one proton, one electron, lots of that. Good. Yep. 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 Nailed that one. Yep. So mostly hydrogen, a little bit of helium. Okay. So those are the top corners of the periodic table mm-hmm. sorted yep, yep lots yep. of that yep and then we've got a little tiny little sprinkling of everything else everything else yep. right <laughs> if i remember correctly in astronomy the everything else is just known as metals metals yep even though they're demonstrably not all mm. metals they're but not that's, look, chemically defined metals but they're astronomically <laughs> defined i mean they're just other stuff they're the noise in terms of the actual overall composition of it's the it's a rounding of the error it's a rounding error on the universe if you if you ignore all the metals it's just hydrogen and helium and that'll get you a very long way but we're not here to re- go over all of that again instead emily there's been some new research something big happened in the universe and it and it gave us some new data. What's been yeah. going on? Fill us in. Yeah, so somewhat ironically, we're going to be talking about very specifically one of those metals, which mm-hmm. is quite interesting. So it, it turns out some of them are actually important. Well, yeah, yeah. Maybe we shouldn't be so blasé about <laughs> uh, about our metals. But um, we particularly found out some more interesting information about the production of tellurium. Right. That is very specific. This mm. is not sort of a whole category. This is one element in particular. Yep. Tellurium, which is element number what? It is element number 52. Right. So that's that's getting up there, mm-hmm. sort of halfway along yeah. the list of elements. That's yeah. specific. What's happened? Why tellurium? Well, what's going on? We observed a pretty exciting astronomical event, which was called a gamma ray burst. 
We've talked about gamma ray bursts before. We have. Incredibly energetic yes. things. Yes, yes. Some of the well, the, the biggest explosions we have in the universe is gamma ray bursts. So there's a very intense, short output of, well, everything, but light gamma rays, which are very, very energetic. Hence, hence the name. It's yeah. a burst of gamma rays amongst, yeah. amongst other things. And 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 what like what do we think this is? What something happened? Yeah. So um, well, uh, there are two kind of ways you can uh, make a, your garden variety types of gamma ray bursts. There's two formation mechanisms. One is the collapse of a massive star. So we talked about this, I think, a little bit last week when we talked about um, black holes and kind mm -hmm. of what limits of where you how massive you had to be to become a black hole. So very very high mass stars when they finish their lives go and sort of collapse on themselves to become these black holes. And then in that process, they can become gamma ray bursts. So they have these basically these enormous jets of energy that come out and that we see as this like flash right. of light. Okay. So the the result of just a massive, great supernova yeah. is what we're talking about. Yeah. 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 Enormous, enormous, just, yeah, collapse and, and kaboom, really, from mm. these massive stars. Uh, but we also get them from ob uh, compact object mergers. Right. So that means uh, the mergers of particularly things like neutron stars. So two neutron stars are in uh, a binary pair and they, they spend, I don't know, a few billion years just sort of spiraling around each other, around each other. But as that spiral decays, they eventually smack into one another and that causes, again, one of these enormous Ridiculously explosions. energetic things, yeah. yeah. Which has been in the news quite a lot over the last while particularly because they because they're so energetic that's those were the signals that we first saw um gravitational waves Indeed, yeah. which was really exciting back what a few years yeah yes yeah, i don't think signals. i'd realized that they would be orbiting around each other for like you just said billions of years because mm -hmm. in the animations that they put out with the press <laughs> releases it's like 30 seconds like it just well. spirals up. and you know okay sure that's the last bit and it's not like that it's artistic license and so on but yeah billions of years yeah it takes a while i wow. mean you, we're not just throwing these things randomly at each other um you know all the time in the universe they have to slowly decay slowly lose the energy of their orbit together wow i just hadn't really taken that on board so mm. yes bottom line is what we're talking about here gamma ray bursts lots of energy coming from some of the most energetic processes in the cosmos. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. great. But we already knew that. We've talked about gamma ray bursts before. So what have we seen? So we've been able to go back and look at the um, afterglow, if you like, of this gamma ray burster. So it's a very particular one that we look, mm -hmm. we're talking about today. It's got a pretty cool name. Mm -hmm. It's GRB 230307A. Very nice. Very yep. nice. It rolls yep. off the tongue. It's poetry. Definitely does. Uh, and it holds a particular... I guess, crown, if mm. you like, or at least a podium position, mm. um, and that it is the second brightest gamma ray burster that we've observed. It gets the silver medal. Yeah. It's up there on the second highest bit on the on the platform there. Now, you'll be completely unsurprised to know that I went down, therefore, the massive rabbit hole of finding out who's the brightest. Of course, because <laughs> if you find the second brightest, like, obviously, the next click from Wikipedia is brightest mm, mm. yeah so we'll come back to that because okay. we've touched on that subject before all right as well all right we'll come so. back to that one can we just first of all who are we talking about who's done this research oh we always forget this don't we we're terrible well, <laughs> sometimes we forget sometimes we just push it back a little so, bit so yeah yeah so this is a, a really interesting nature paper which was um published on the 25th of october uh the lead author is andrew um levan 
from the Netherlands, uh, but it's a huge collaboration. It's a it's a author list as long as your arm, because sometimes you need a lot of people to yeah, yeah. to be these able to digest studies. all these kinds of data. And it uses data from th- uh, three big telescopes observatories. We've got JWST, um, which is where what we're going to talk about in terms of the identification of the chemical elements. It's got Fermi, which is the classic um, gamma ray space telescope. And uh, another one called the Niels Gers Space Observatory, which is also looking at the high energy so outputs. Three different space telescopes. Yep. Wow. Yep. We're yep. Not mucking around. No, exactly. Point all the things we've got in orbit. Point them in this direction. Yeah. Well, these these kind of transient events. So we call we have lots of different ways of observing in astronomy, and these gamma ray bursts fall into what we call transients, as in we can't predict them. So like a supernova, right? We, d- we don't know when a supernova is going to go off in another galaxy. We, we don't, can't see the level of detail to say, oh, that's about to go. We better start watching that one. Yeah. I mean, people have been looking at, you know, things like Betelgeuse for, for a while and go, oh, it's, I mean, it'll go eventually, but eventually is like hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. Yeah. A few million like, maybe. You know, yeah. you'd, be, you'd be pretty confident to be sitting there on glued to your telescope all night just waiting for it to happen. Like, you've got, you're going to be waiting, yeah. statistically. I mean, it's obviously not a great use of your time just to no. be doing that. No. But we do have a, a lot of very large surveys that go on that are looking for transient objects. Most of them are actually uh, robotic and use really clever things like AI behind them to identify, hey, that thing just suddenly got bright over there. We'll send out an alert and everyone everyone start looking. Which is going the other way, isn't mm. it? That's we, you know, we talk about this quite a lot on the podcast. That when things happen very, very rarely, the way you get around that in astronomy is by looking at lots of things, mm. and eventually you will see one of them happening somewhere. You won't know where in advance, but it'll happen. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And so it means that a lot of very large telescopes run scheduling programs where, instead of kind of saying, "Yeah, I want you know the fifth of May to the tenth of May, please, for my observations." You give the um, facility your parameters of, I really need to observe this target and I need these kinds of conditions. I want the moon to be over there. I want it. So you give them kind of the parameters that you need and they will automatically schedule your observations as to where is the most kind of um, efficient time to do them. Right. Okay. So they're putting together the schedule for, you know, an observatory, a, a particular telescope or a particular, you know, up there in space telescopy thing um and that can be cut up i mean to relatively small chunks yeah and parceled yeah. out you don't necessarily know sometimes when your observations will happen because it might depend on the weather conditions and it might be that you're in the queue and your ones reach the top of the queue and this particular night because these conditions are perfect for your observations or they might be lower down because there's someone else's observations that are higher priority that need to happen with the particular conditions that it currently and presumably same. these things happen sort of fairly automatically that that yeah. you know if suddenly your bit gets bumped up the queue that'll just happen mm-hmm. and you'll get told about it and yep. you'll get the data eventually. yeah typically you just wake up to an email and it's like oh we got you for your observation Have for some you data so it's yeah. not like you've suddenly got to jump in your car and drive down to you know mission control and, and point the thing yourself you just you know it just happens yeah exactly cool this isn't Universal, of course, but it's, it's fairly common amongst large facilities. Um, but what it does mean also is that they can be flexible and say, hang on a minute, we've got this gamma ray burst that just happened. Let's all turn and have a look um, and see what's going on. Right. So if you had a more regular observation that was kind of coming in, up in the queue, you can be completely bumped and say, well, hang on a minute, this is a rare thing that's happening over there. We've just got to drop tools and 
and go and look at that. Sorry, but you just got bumped by a burster. Yeah, nice. Exactly. Okay. So yeah, little diversion there on the on the ins and outs of how this stuff works. But mm. bottom line is, we had three different space telescopes. Yep. All pointed at this thing. Yeah. So you can learn a lot. What were the, so what were the different wavelengths that that was looking in? Then JWST is infrared. Yes, and and they're the spectroscopic observations that we'll talk about the most. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other two are really more the uh, detections right. and the and the classification of the gamma ray burster itself. Okay. Um, yeah, so the whole event happened in March this year. So 7th of March was when we had the burst. Um, depending on which telescope you're talking about and how you measure the length of the burster, it was about 200 seconds or 35 seconds, depending on how you want to measure. Some, somewhere between part of a minute and a few minutes. Yeah, sure. yeah. So around about that sort of time scale, which is actually really long for one of these bursters. Most of the very, very energetic, very bright bursters, we would be only expecting to see for a couple of seconds. So it's quite – that in itself is actually a real puzzle mm. because when you t- we talked about the two different origin mechanisms for these bursters being the, the neutron stars merging or the single star exploding – um, we expect the single star exploding bursters to be the longer ones. So they're talking about tens of seconds. And we expect the neutron star merging ones to be the really short ones, uh, as in a second or a fraction of a second. Uh, but this one's a longer one, but it's still a neutron star merger. So Weird. So do we have a sense of like what happened there? They just didn't want to merge. Yeah. They're well, it, it seems like we do need this extra category it's not maybe as binary as as these these two boxes these two types of mergers and therefore two different types of observations this is kind of putting some more evidence that actually the longer ones can be formed by prolonged mergers and so there's there's just more i think nuance there than perhaps the simplistic picture of it's one or the other turns out the universe is more complicated than we thought yeah who knew Okay. Yeah. So that's interesting, actually, in its own right. Um, one of the other interesting points about this gamma ray burster is that we noticed that the uh, location of it was slightly unusual, and that it's got a host galaxy, uh, but it's actually not within that host galaxy. Hmm. It's about the diameter of the Milky Way away from it. Okay. So just hanging around. Yeah. So these two neutron stars, they had to have originated in this host galaxy, right? That's the, you, you can't form stars just in intergalactic space. You need stuff to form stars. So that means gas and dust that you need to collapse down to form stars, to go through their life cycles, to eventually produce these neutron stars because these are end points of yeah. a star's life. Yeah, yeah. So the stars had to come from somewhere. They yeah. don't just spontaneously pop into existence. They're not subatomic particles. No, yeah. no. Though, so they had to go through this process of stellar evolution to end up with these two neutron stars in this pair. But then through some mechanism, we don't really know the details, but obviously, but they got ejected from that galaxy and are now kind of drifting away. Got, got flung out. Yeah. And got flung out as a pair. yeah. Because again, you you wouldn't it just wouldn't be that you'd have two neutron stars independently flung out and then just meet each other and oh. make a binary system. Like the odds of that are ridiculous. So could, these were yeah, a pair exactly. that got flung out somehow. Yeah, weird. 
Very weird. Yeah. So that's an interesting thing as well. Okay. That we can add into the puzzle. So this is a cool system already. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually, I think, telling you more about what we don't know about this system, I think, than what we do. But that's, that's, we'll get there. that's the nice we'll part of the astronomy, right? Anyway, so after the, detecting the gamma ray burst itself, doing some measurements on the actual gamma rays, the brightness, etc., then we pointed James Webb at this, um, at the afterglow. And James Webb went and looked at it twice, once about 29 days after the initial burster and once about 61 days. And this is very deliberate because when you've got two neutron stars that emerging like this, turns out you've got a lot of really high energy neutrons. Well, yeah, it's in the name, right? Like yeah. you've got a lot of neutrons. You've got a lot of nuclear material mm -hmm. all scrunched down. I mean, we talked about that like a little while ago. I think mm. we've done... Over the last several syzygies, we've talked about neutron stars and white dwarf stars being a slightly different thing. Um, but neutron stars being this incredibly compact bundle of nuclear stuff mm, mm. that when they collide, huge explosion amongst <laughs> which is this incredible quantity of nuclear material. Lots mm. of neutrons, lots of protons, which then come out of that, mm -hmm. um, which means lots of nuclei eventually yeah, yeah. which yeah. is cool exactly and so and the fact that you've got so many particularly neutrons just you know chilling out because they came from the neutron stars they have to go somewhere they've got lots of energy because they've just gone through this enormous explosion as part of the gamma ray burster and part of the merger then you get some really interesting physical processes uh particularly what we call nucleosynthesis processes so nucleosynthesis meaning just the building of nuclei so we talk a lot about um, the when we talk about the formation of elements in the universe. We, I mean, we hydrogen basically just formed out of the Big Bang, right? The the Big Bang happened, the universe cooled, and then you had hydrogen. Yeah, at its simplest, a hydrogen nucleus is literally like one thing. It's yeah. a proton. It just you know you don't have to build that. It's just there. Yeah. So we call that primordial, right? Sure. That was basically just happened as part of the Big <laughs> Bang. Bit of bit of helium and maybe a bit of lithium. It's like it's like God's first design. Can we make an atom at all? Great. Yeah. Good. Let's do it. Everything else has basically been. Uh, every other element has basically been formed through some kind of stellar process. Uh, so when you talk about the elements up to around about iron, uh, then you're talking mostly about processes that happen in the fusion reactions in stars. So fusion is going is uh, basically building smaller elements into bigger elements and letting off energy as part of that process. Right. Right. So the fusion from hydrogen to helium, that's the core driving mechanism for the sun. So that fusion process happens, energy comes out, sun is fine, happy, carries on its life. But there are lots of other fusion-related reactions. You can have even cyclic reactions in fusion where you can produce carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, all these wonderful kind of probably like the first um, 20 elements that you had to learn in early secondary school. Yes, I can't remember the specific mnemonic. It was like... Here, here, little barrel brown chews nuts on Friday. That's about as far as I oh, can remember. Oh, wow. That's it. very uh, different to my one. What was one. Henry, he likes Betty best because Nancy often flirts near nasty muggy alleys. Oh, so that's much better Simple than Peter mine. Simple Peter stole Clara's aunt's kitty cat. That's much better than mine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that works. Anyway. But the point is, it's it's not as simple as just glomming a bunch of stuff together. There are there are complicated ways mm. of slowly but surely fusing together lighter things to make heavier things. Yep. Um, 
all the way up to, you said, around about iron, mm. at which point it kind of stops. Yeah, at that point then it actually, the whole process gets flipped upside down because when you were sticking things together with those lighter elements, you had energy coming out as part of that process. Once you get to about iron, it becomes problematic because if you're working with elements that are heavier than that, to try and stick them together actually needs energy to go in. Right, right. Once you get up to iron, you're basically at the lowest lowest energy per proton or neutron state that you can be in. Hmm. You know, you can stick things together and it's like, if we manage to take these two smaller things and stick them together, make a heavier thing up to iron, that's energetically favorable. The universe yeah. likes doing that. That can but hold beyond, up a star. Yeah. Beyond iron, you can still have stable things. We've got hmm. loads of nuclei which are stable, but iron is the lowest energy bit. Hmm. So inside a star, it's kind of hard to get past iron because that's your that's your bottom of the hill. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah you're not going to get any type of way of making fusion happen, which is going to make you give you the energy to hold yourself up against gravity by putting together anything heavier than iron. So stars just can't do it because right. they need, they need to be putting out energy to hold their own um, against gravity. I'm, I'm personifying stars again. It's, oh, it's, 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 it's a bad habit. It's going to happen. So, so elements heavier than iron, there's a few processes in the universe that we've identified that can build these elements, um, but you need to have an energy source, right? So supernova actually are really good uh, ways of producing different types of heavier elements because, again, with supernova, you've got lots of stuff hanging around which used to be in the star itself and you've got hey a lot of energy kicking around a lot of energy so you can start to push atoms together they can start to make do these kinds of reactions again i mean you've got all these these stable uh combinations of protons and neutrons to for for much larger atoms much heavier atoms than than um than iron but you need to put in that energy to get there. Hmm. You've got to give it a really good kick. And a supernova is a really good kick. It's one yeah. of the best kicks we've got. Yeah. And these yeah. processes are called nuclear synthesis, where you're sticking things together, basically, sure. okay. instead of fusion, which is, you know, building something. So uh, in nuclear synthesis, one of the main processes that we have of building these heavier elements, say, say st sticking two lighter things together to build a heavier thing, is a process called the R process. And the R process stands for rapid neutron capture process. Okay. And I'm guessing it does what it says on the tin. You're capturing neutrons rapidly. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So unsurprisingly, there's also an S process. Which is slow. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah. we're not going to talk about S process, but okay. we're going to talk about R process because this is the one that's relevant to the neutron star mergers and, and particularly the tellurium. So to give you an overview of the whole process, what we've got is we've got, say, nucleus of random stuff. Well, you can imagine, pick your favorite chemical element if you want to. Now, that nucleus can, because you've got lots of neutrons just whizzing around, lots of energy, those neutrons can start to stick into your existing nucleus. So you've got nucleus of, which would normally be balanced roughly equally between protons and neutrons. That's kind of roughly how atomic physics likes to happen. Yeah. I mean, in the heavier ones, it tends to be more neutrons than protons, but yeah. but not by ridiculous amounts. Yeah. Sure. Almost, almost, yeah, 50-50. Yeah. But yeah, as you go heavier, you do end up getting a few more neutrons. 
Um, so, but then if you start just banging a new more neutrons in, because there's lots of them flying around. Yeah, yeah. You you're not changing the actual chemical element of your atom because it's neutrons, not protons. Yeah, and and the element is defined by the proton. Exactly. Yeah. So, but what you are doing is changing the isotope. Which means you're making every time you add in an extra neutron, you're changing the isotope to a heavier isotope. Um, and so, and but with the R process, and this is where the rapid comes in. You're firing all these neutrons in and making this this nucleus bigger and bigger and bigger with lots of neutrons. Um, if you weren't doing that quick enough, as you as in, if this was a slow capture process, you would have a decay which would happen, which um, is called beta decay, and it means basically a neutron can decay into a proton. Right, and and that's because you've got like the vast majority of ways that you could stick protons and neutrons together have either got too many neutrons or too many protons, mm. or perhaps both and it just falls apart, right? Yeah. But if you've got too many neutrons, that's, that's unstable. There's a much better way to do a nucleus than that, mm. and it will decay mm. through bunch of different processes, yeah. beta decay being a really good one, mm -hmm. to something which is more stable. And yeah. it'll do that reasonably quickly. But you're saying in, in this case, there's too many neutrons flying around. Yeah. It's too fast. There's no time. Yeah. Right. So beta decay is a process that takes an amount of time. Time is relevant, relative, but in this case, it can't happen on these timescales. By the so time you, the nucleus has even thought of doing a beta decay, it's not that nucleus anymore because we've got another neutron. Well, it's, yeah, well, it's, yeah, exactly. It's massive and it's yeah. really, really heavy. And so what it does is instead it kind of breaks apart and, and decays into two other heavy, still heavy elements because we're sort of we're not going all the way back down to kind of boron or something like that. We are staying in the heavy element part of the periodic table. But it would, instead of yeah having that sort of a proton, just a neutron, sorry, just change into a proton, the whole thing just breaks apart. Right, so it, it ultimately just gets too big and does fission. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. So, and this is this is called the R process um, for nuclear synthesis, and we understand this is how many of our, um, I guess, favorite elements are actually formed in the universe. Favorite as in? Gold. Gold. Okay. Yeah, that's how you produce we like gold. gold. Yeah. Randomly here yeah. on Earth, it's it's a valuable thing. Yeah. yeah. Platinum is another one. Mm -hmm. Uranium. Similarly. Yeah. So these kind of uh, they're not really exotic to us in some sense elements, but the way they form is through this sort of fairly exotic process in a very exotic environment. So the gold. What you're saying is the gold and the platinum and the uranium. But let's focus on gold because it's gold. All the gold. All the gold here on Earth came from things like. Neutron? Yeah, star, yeah, from these kinds of processes, yeah. Isn't that wild? Like mm. you get, you kind of get a bit blasé with statements about we are all stardust, which is very poetic and nice and everything. But when you start delving into that a bit more, it's like, wait a minute, wait, sorry, hang on. All the gold mm. that we dig out of the ground and make into stuff is from neutron star mergers or similarly ridiculous environments. Yeah, because there's just no environment on Earth where you have that many neutrons and that much energy in the same Space. That's wild. It'd be very worrying if you did. Yeah, well, it would. Yes, we'd be a bit concerned. Yeah. But it's just, that's nuts. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. So, yeah, so that, and, and another one of these ones, of course, that we have, have to come back to is tellurium. Right. You did mention. Yeah. Tellurium, which you don't come across a lot. No. Do we know anything about tellurium? Do we like tellurium? Well, it's very, very rare on Earth. Right. Interestingly. So, if you wanted to go and, um, I guess, have a nice piece of jewellery made out of a very rare element, much rarer than gold or platinum or any of these other well, like elements. A, like a toilet or a bathtub? 
Yeah. 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 Tellurium is one of your bets um, because it is exceptionally rare on Earth. Although it's really, really quite abundant in the universe, Ah, relatively. That's weird. Why would it be really abundant in the universe and not here on Earth? So we're just unlucky. Well, a little bit. It's it's to do with how it's quite a volatile um, metal. So whilst when it's in its stable form, it is actually kind of a shiny metal in Mm. the classic kind of aluminium or whatever sense. But uh, when the Earth was forming, so when the solar system was forming, when you had the, the solar disk uh, and you had all these kind of elements kicking around, tellurium was at that point in the form of a gas and really volatile. And actually, we believe it was lost to space as the Earth was, Earth oh, was forming. Wow. So we would have had a pile of it along with all yeah. the gold and the platinum and, hmm. and all the other bits. but volatile which mm. means it's sort of gassing off mm. into space we lost all our tellurium yeah so it's not there's not much in the earth's crust at all wow so it's quite rare okay, it's also really not, hard to extract apparently maybe not a so, yeah so you know if you want if you want to really splash out <laughs> maybe Listen, not, if you yeah. want to send us a tellurium bathtub we're not going to say no i yeah. guess is what emily's saying and uh, yeah i'm not sure if it has a lot of use apart from <laughs> being a bathtub i don't even know if it'll make a good bathtub but Who anyway knows? anyway so so, yeah, tellurium is not, a, I guess, a metal we're particularly familiar with in our right. everyday lives because right. of that. But that's not the point. No. The point is we've learned something about it through this gamma ray burster. Yeah, yeah. And which, it is abundant in, in the universe. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's kicking around. It's well, really yeah. important. All ours is out there for a start. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. And I had to kind of laugh because although tellurium is the main focus of this piece of research, they also do hint at a couple of other uh, heavy metals, which are quite important. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly, they talked about iodine and thorium. Mm-hmm. They didn't talk about thulium and thallium, which disappointed me quite a lot. <laughs> There's a reference there. There is a very good reference there that should be part of your life if it's not already. Tesium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and acetine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's a tree, maturbium, actinium, rubidium, and born so we are let's let's just little recap, okay? Yeah. Just going back for a minute here, because you've covered a lot of territory with a few, as we like to do, tangents and rabbit holes. That's fine. We are looking at mm-hmm. an incredibly energetic explosion of some kind, mm-hmm. very long way away, mm-hmm. which on its own is really interesting because it took far longer than it would normally take for the thing to actually happen for the burst, mm-hmm. right? And it's got a host galaxy but it's not in the host galaxy it's like mm-hmm. a really long way outside of the host galaxy which is weird but we're shelving all of that because we're focusing in now on the stuff that that we're looking at in the afterglow mm-hmm. of this incredible explosion and we are teasing out there's there's tellurium in there mm-hmm. and there's other elements and here's a really good question how the hell do you know that <laughs> like, wh- how do you know what's out there? And I know that you can look at a star and see what's in the star from the spectrum of the star. Is that what we're doing? Are we looking at the spectrum of the afterglow of this thing? We are, but we're looking in the spectrum in a different way to how we would look in the spectrum of a star. Right. So we've talked about, I think, spectra of stars a few times. But as a recap, what happens is, um, let's say the sun the sun produces a what we call black body spectrum, which is it produces light over a huge range of wavelengths. And that the amount of light that's produced at every wavelength is just determined by the temperature. The most photons that are produced are produced in the optical part of the spectrum. And that tells us that the sun is around about 
6,000 degrees on the surface. Right. right, okay. But what we do see when we look into the detail is that some of those, all those photons are being produced in the center of the sun, right? But they've got to get through all the rest of those layers to get out of the sun. And it's in the outer layers, the cooler outer atmosphere of the sun, that if you've got particular chemical species, let's say hydrogen, which there's lots of, sure. that hydrogen can absorb very specific wavelengths of light. Hydrogen loves to absorb things like 656 nanometers. Right. And it's very specific. Very specific. Yeah. And we, so when we look at the spectrum, we see 652, 653, 654, 650. Oh, 656 is missing. Right. Because the hydrogen has absorbed it. Yeah. So, um, And this means that each chemical element absorbs specific wavelengths in a slightly different way. Uh, we use terms like chemical fingerprint because we can then say, well, those, those particular wavelengths are missing, therefore it's this particular chemical element. Right. Hydrogen and helium and all the other elements have a very, very specific fingerprint, a very specific spectrum yep. of stuff that they like to absorb or yep. emit, depending on which way you're looking. And so if you look at all the light coming from the sun... You've got this huge extended rainbow across all of the different wavelengths mm -hmm. with these lines in it. And mm. those lines tell you that's what's there. Yeah. And you can see that really clearly. Mm. Yeah. And what's happening on the atomic level is that that, that nucleus of, uh, or that atom of hydrogen um, is saying that I can only accept energies or photons of particular wavelengths right it can't do any it can't do just any random one it has to have these very specific wavelengths that are to do with the arrangement of the um particularly the electrons in the in the atom it's the magic of quantum mechanics it is yeah and uh, and but yeah you're right the other way works down as well so when a um atom absorbs a photon it increases its energy a little bit right but when an atom randomly decays from one energy state to another, it releases a photon. And again, that's at that very specific yeah, frequency. Exactly the same one as the one it absorbed. So you could imagine in the, in the life cycle, life story of a of hydrogen atom, it can absorb this wonderful photon at 656 nanometers, sort of hang out in this higher energy state for a while, and then release it again. Uh, and it, that photon will be exactly at that wavelength again. Yeah. So when we see emission, it typically means that you're in a pretty energetic environment because it means that you've had energy that somehow built up your, let's say, hydrogen atoms into this upper energy state, and now they're decaying back to give away the photons again. Right. So if you happen to have a whole bunch of stuff, material, elements in the universe in an energetic environment... Mm -hmm. Rather than looking for the gaps in a spectrum, you can look for the bright lines hmm. in the spectrum. And you could see, oh, there's a bright line at that frequency. That's probably hydrogen or carbon or tellurium. Indeed, yeah. And like what kind of really highly energetic environment might you be in? Well, you could be in the afterglow of a neutron star merger. That would be one of them. And yeah. so rather than looking at gaps in a spectrum of a star or something else in the universe, you're looking at the actual emission lines, the mm -hmm. bright lines from these materials themselves yeah. in this afterglow. Cool. And the reason why we need such awesome telescopes like James Webb is that some of these lines don't happen in the optical part of the spectrum, but they happen in the infrared. Right, which is what James Webb's all about. Yeah, exactly. So in terms, in this case, it's the mid-infrared, and we're looking at specifically an emission line of 
2.15 microns, mm -hmm. so more micrometers, and that is linked to the element of tellurium. Okay. And that's, that's not coincidence. Presumably they went, well, James Webb's really good at looking at this region. Let, what, what would be something that we'd be, we would expect to be out there? Mm -hmm. And let's go and find it. Yeah, exactly. So there's really a lot of um, unknowns to do with these uh, nucleosynthesis processes that we're trying to understand and trying to use observations to help inform our understanding. So we need to know how fast some of these reactions happen. We don't have very good measurements of the speed of those. We need to know how likely some of these reactions are to happen, what special environments are. And whilst these might sound like kind of esoteric questions on themselves, but in bulk, I mean, we're talking about how do you build the chemical composition of the universe? So they even small discrepancies in these kind of numbers can mean vastly different amounts of tellurium that you're trying to produce to match what we observe in the universe. Yeah, I mean, we already said at the beginning that, you know, there's hydrogen, there's helium, and then there's everything else as a, as a rounding error, basically, mm. on the quantity of stuff in the universe. And so if everything put together is actually a tiny amount, you can be pretty confident where tellurium comes from. Mm. But you can still be really wrong about the total amount of tellurium that's actually out there. Mm which presumably affects all sorts of things around models of what, I mean... Well, just how the whole universe evolves, yeah. right? Chemical evolution of the universe tells you exactly how the whole base, the formation of everything works, like how much material is going to go into the next generation of stars or planets. How, what is that going to look like? How does that make galaxies evolve how is you know it's, it's it becomes the biggest question from the smallest atoms so we trained jwst on this thing and mm -hmm. we saw the tellurium but that's not the end of the story it's not just that we saw it well from these you can also figure out the abundances <clears throat> right so you can figure out how much tellurium there is and that allows you to backtrack and say well which processes which are processes are at play here in, in this energetic environment are we seeing these particular steps in the process or other circular loops or things like that? So it becomes really useful data. So it's getting it's getting down into that detail where you're going from, hey, this happens at all. You know, mm. the, the, the notion that you can have two neutron stars merging, spiraling around and merging together in this incredibly cataclysmic event. Just knowing that at all is a good start. Mm. But then digging into that is all sorts of, yeah, but we've got all this nuclear material flinging about. How does that work? Mm. Like what actually happens there? And the best way to investigate that is to say, well, what came out of it? Mm. How much of this versus how much of that? And that tells you what are the dominant processes exactly and to, to sidestep into another part of your world i know that you're involved a lot with binding blocks mm -hmm. and the nuclear astrophysics projects that happen in uh, york and hull and beyond mm -hmm. so and binding blocks just just for anyone who doesn't know which is probably pretty much all of you it's a it's an outreach program based here at york but across a bunch of different universities where they basically look at nuclear physics teaching nuclear physics and teaching people about nuclear physics with the help of like a 40-foot-long Lego chart of all of the nuclear isotopes that are in existence. Hmm. It's awesome. It's really it's nice. It's a very cool thing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really fun because you get to build basically a huge 
uh, Lego chart of it's another way of viewing the periodic table effectively. Yeah. It doesn't look like the periodic table. It's just another kind of version of it, but you get to build it out of Lego. Yeah. And like Lego makes everything. Better. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, and so that's where this is, this research is really come into play because you can do a lot of models. You can model how all these processes work, but you always need the observational constraints to fit, to add into those models to get them accurate. Okay. So, Quick recap, right? Gamma ray burst. Yep. Weird gamma ray burst. So yep. we're learning already. Yeah. And then able to point JWST, which surely has paid for itself like a hundred times over mm-hmm. already. So well done, team. At gamma ray burst to measure how much tellurium is there out there. And we're learning about about that mm-hmm. and its abundance, at least in this part of the universe. And that's teaching us an enormous amount about the R process, which is which is cool. Yeah. But I want to backtrack because you said earlier that this was the second most energetic gamma ray burst that we've ever seen. And second's never good enough. No, it's such a loaded statement, isn't obviously, it? Obviously, obviously the next thing you would do is, yeah, but, but, but what's, what's bigger? Yeah. And so, Emily, which was the boat? <laughs> we've talked about boats before. So boats are... We talked about goats on boats. We did. We did. Um, So boat stood for brightest of all time. Yep. We decided that we hadn't seen a boat yet, I think was our conclusion. But let's let's recap on some of these ideas. But we were taking all sorts of different possible, like, kinds of boat, weren't we? Yeah, there was no, there weren't speed boats, but there were were lots of boats. Um, So, well, let's do a recap. So episode six. 61, I think mm-hmm. it was, we looked at um, a claim that a black hole merger explosion was the biggest explosion in the universe. Um, that's a long time ago, isn't it? It is, not yeah. it um, And now, I don't even remember from our boat episode, but I played around with the units and I ended up in a random um, metric of units. Yeah, you want to talk about tangential rabbit holes. Well, I don't know where we ended oh, up. Oh, I ended up was... in ergs and it was just, it was horrible. I'd, I'd regret it. <laughs> it was terrible. Um, I've gone down another road, and another set of units. Good. So um, it'll, be, it'll be, yeah, maybe useful. We'll see. So in this set of units, I've gone with number of times the luminosity of the sun over its whole lifetime. Right. So... <sighs> Adding up all of the stuff that comes out of the sun mm-hmm. in, in energy mm-hmm. over its entire lifetime, that's one. Yep. Okay. Yep. One one sun. And if you want a, a more accurate number, it's something around 10 to the 44 joules. Let's just go with one sun. Yeah, one sun. One sun life. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Now, that explosion, they were claiming it was about 10 billion sun, one suns. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's Now, what you have to be very careful with here is that time matters, right? Mm -hmm. So brightness has got a time dependency, right? It's how many photons are coming and hitting your eyeball per second. Right. I mean, if you had a really, really, really dim flashlight torch Mm. shining in your face, like really dim, but for the rest of eternity, Mm. (laughs) that's a lot of photons Mm. over an infinitely long period of time as opposed to a supernova going off on your eyeball. Like, they're both 
like lots of energy, just different time frames. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So this, the black hole explosion we talked about actually occurred over a very long time scale because we talked about it carving a big hole in the galaxy. That's right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that number is perhaps not a particularly useful number in a sense because we're talking over really long time scales. So the amount of sort of the brightness in terms of the amount of energy per second is actually a lot yeah, lower. Yeah, okay. A bit disappointing. I mean, it yeah. did carve out a massive great void, mm. which is impressive. Mm. Well done. Points all around. But in terms of like what you really want, mm. what you really want is a massive great explosion. Yeah. And, that and a bright flash. Yeah. That's, that's what kind of, we're imagining It here, kind of feels it? like it's getting in there on a technicality. Yeah. No one likes that. No. So let's put that one aside. Yeah. And then, so that was episode 61. Then mm -hmm. we also talked about the latest claim for the biggest explosion ever, which was in episode 107. I thought it was not that yeah, long ago. Yeah, not that long ago. I don't yeah. know, it's not quite in this book, but it's in the previous one. Now, this was actually, again, um, over an extended period of time mm -hmm. scenario. So in, this, in terms of raw numbers, this was only 100 suns mm -hmm. in terms of brightness. Over a long period of time, but a shorter period of time than the black hole explosion we just mentioned. Okay, so we're moving in the direction of explosion-y things, but still a long period of time. But much yeah. less energy, but... Uh, yeah. I mean, presumably it's easier to put out huge amounts of energy over long periods of time. Mm. Like, if you're going to do it in a big explosion-y type thing, that's hard to do on massive scales. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the boat that we kind of... Sure. Came, I think we came to the conclusion it's not really a boat. Yeah. It looks a bit like a boat, but yeah. it's it's a more bit... of a barge. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. So let's compare like for like, okay. and that might be a bit right. more useful. Yeah. Let's do so the thing that everyone actually wants. Yes, gamma ray bursters. Good. Gamma ray bursters, some of the brightest explosions, biggest explosions in the universe. Great. This is the second brightest gamma ray burst we've ever seen. We can at least compare apples with apples. Okay. We're just going to put a big box around it and say gamma ray bursts only in here, please. Yes, yes. exactly. So the brightest one we have ever seen is uh, GRB221009A. Again, poetry. We did talk about this one, actually, when we talked about boats as mm -hmm. well. Um, and this one outputs around about a thousand suns. It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, it was quite a lot. Yeah. In a very short period of time. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So we're on the, on the scale of a few seconds. So yeah. we are actually comparing yeah. Like for like. In yeah. terms I think of that's an explosion by him. It was, it was a lot. Now, this one, I had to do some creative maths here because nobody reports in scientific papers how many times the lifetime output of the sun, their explosion is. In fact, they often don't use any kind of sensible units and very rarely will even use consistent units. Someone should have a word. I mean, someone from PR should say, look, people want to know how big this explosion-y thing was. So put it in terms that people can understand, please. We need to have consistency here. Yeah. So, well, there was a conversion factor, um, which was done for the press releases, which was this, this one was a million times brighter than the brightness of the galaxy. Okay. I mean... How bright's the galaxy? Well, like we can't even see all of it, so no, that doesn't help. No, and it doesn't help us with suns either, which was the unit I was going with at the well, time. True. Yeah. Anyway, but my back of the envelope fudge calculation, if you like, is you end up basically about one sun, one solar lifetime output of energy is around about that level, okay. right? Okay. So that means that we had the brightest, which was around about a thousand. Mm. This one, which is around about one, 
And <laughs> so there's a big there's a big difference. Yeah, already. There's, a, there's a big gap in the way. Yeah, and all the rest of which are fractional. Right. Of that. Okay, so this was second, but mm. by a wide margin. Mm. It wasn't even close. No. Cool. So we're not, yeah, no one's sort of trying to eke in on that gold gold medal that GRB221009A has. Well, it's been an episode of Tangents and Rabbit Holes. I've, I've liked this one. This has been fun. I didn't know that we were going to go in these different places. I didn't know, I didn't know anything about tellurium. Mm. Now I know. Mm. Now I know. And I'm still keen on a tellurium bathtub. So, mm. you know, Christmas is coming. We should check if tellurium reacts with water. Is it? Well, hmm. I mean, you don't it have to use doesn't. it. probably doesn't. You just have I don't it. know. Yeah. Sodium does, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm. Emily, if people wanted to get in touch to find out what's the easiest way to ship a tellurium bathtub to the Syzygy team, how would they get in touch with us? So there is a really handy contact me box, mm-hmm. contact us box on our website, syzygy.fm. Yes, indeed. Which is a website that helpfully has all these previous episodes. So if your memory isn't as great as all the rest of our listeners or indeed anywhere near mine, uh, you can go back and listen to episode 30, 61 and 107 to yeah. catch up. If you want to go and revisit Emily's take on where everything came from and what was the boat that was bigger than the other boats and and why there were goats involved why were they i can't even remember why there were goats but look you can do that and all the other episodes besides they're all at syzygy.fm we're also on some of the social medias Mm. um including a whole new social media i think since the last time we spoke we're now on threads well we were already on instagram right at syzygypod and threads is like it's the twitter of instagram and so you get it for free oh I was so, gonna, I was going to ask a really embarrassing question. I don't, what threads? Yeah, yeah. It's basic. It's 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 Facebook's, Instagram's, Twitter. Okay. So you know. Cool. It's like, if you're on threads, go and find us at Pod. We're on there doing the things. Uh, we're also on YouTube. If you're the kind of person who likes to watch the things you listen to, mm. um, I can't guarantee that the visuals are absolutely thrilling. But we're there yeah. anyway. So just go and find the Syzygy Sometimes podcast you just want calming visuals anyway. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Listen, if you're wondering to yourself, how can I help improve the show and make it better? First of all, get in touch and say hi. Mm. You never know. If you get in touch with us and ask a question or point out something really interesting that we might not have thought about, you might get your own episode devoted to your bit of correspondence. I think those awesome. are some of our best episodes. They are. They're so much fun when people get in touch with us. But the other way that you can do it is just to spread the word. Go and tell everyone that you know that you think would get a kick out of having their mind blown every couple of weeks by something awesome in the universe and point them in the direction of the podcast. Finally, if you want to actually help us to do the thing that we do financially, you can head over to patreon.com slash syzygypod and throw a couple of bucks, a couple of pounds our way every month and it helps the electrons flow through the website and helps us to do the things we do. But the most important thing is that you keep listening and We'll be back in a week, a couple of weeks. We'll just have to see how the schedule goes. In the meantime, Emily, it's been fun. Great to see you. See you later. Bye, everybody.